Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. This is a good one. Washington Representative Christine Reeves emerged from homelessness and the foster care system to be the first Afro-Latino woman elected to the Washington House in 18 years, and the only woman in the legislature with children under the age of five. Since then, she authored critical legislation to expand child care, protect consumers, and support working families. She's also a fierce advocate for giving more resources to legislators, especially those from underrepresented communities, so that they can succeed and create the democracy we desperately need. She's a candid and knowledgeable observer of the realities of elected life in America today. Enjoy. Washington Representative Christine Reeves, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Wonderful to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. I want to start with your life story. It is a remarkable one, painful one, and I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners to hear how you found yourself in elected office and what you're hoping to do there. Well, gosh, Ryan, thanks. Although I kind of recoil at the word painful, but when you say it, I guess that is absolutely one way that it can be interpreted, but it's my life. I don't know anything else. So, um, well, for our audience, our audience's benefit, especially those of you not living in Washington, my story is one, I think, of perseverance and resilience is how I like to frame it. I grew up the daughter of a single mom who we grew up in a small rural farming community in eastern Washington. And for those of you who may not know, eastern Washington is a very red kind of conservative Republican space. And growing up there, unfortunately, my mom, who is of mixed heritage, found herself struggling with a lot of kind of discriminatory trauma and reverted to substance use. And so I spent, you know, the better part of my childhood in and out of foster homes for about the first 10 years due to my mom's substance use. And then as kind of time progressed, she got married, you know, spent a good solid 10 years with my stepdad and some stability, which was great. But then when my mom and my stepdad split because of her relapse into her substance use, I actually found myself homeless for the last two years of my K through 12 education. And so I learned at a very, very early age, Ryan, that, you know, it was decision makers in places like Olympia, in places like D.C., that would decide whether or not I had access to food, whether or not I had access to housing, whether or not, you know, I would be able to get to and from school every day. And I also learned a critical lesson in that I believe public school educators are the reason 
that I am here today. My high school counselor, when she found out that I was sleeping outside, put her job on the line to ensure that I had a roof over my head. It was my high school English teacher who, when he learned that I you know, was not eating every day, would come in on Saturdays under the guise of you know, being the school newspaper editor to make sure that he could do a health and safety check and you know, bring me a lunch on Saturdays. So I fundamentally believe public school teachers saved my life. And as I got to go on, it was because of those public school educators that I got scholarships to go to college. I became the first in my family to graduate with my bachelor's degree. I then went on to get my master's degree. I'm now currently getting my PhD. And it really was public school educators that led me to run for public office for the first time. Because the biggest issue facing our state in 2016 when I ran was the constitutional obligation of the state to fully fund basic education. And I had two kids at this point. They were two and five. They weren't quite into public school yet, but I knew they were going to be. And I wanted to ensure that every single kid in our community, in our state, had access to a high quality K through 12 education, because I believed that when you have access to public education, no matter where you started, you could end up building a better life for yourself. And so that's what got me into politics. And I'm excited to have had the opportunity to bring my lived experience to the work. Can you talk a little bit, I mean, the interactions and the efforts of your high school teachers, in both cases, they almost had to violate rules in order to help you. And so often we see systems fail, kids in the foster care system. Where do you see the gaps for kids who are in the foster care system or experiencing homelessness or at the risk of homelessness where we could do better to serve them? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll actually borrow a line from one of my colleagues here in Washington. She often says, you know, we've built systems where, you know, you have to do something wrong before you can get something right. And I think that really sticks with me because to your point, so often the systems, the processes, the policy, the institutions that we build are built with barriers around access, barriers around opportunity, and our message and our methods don't often align. And so part of my mission as a state elected official has been to really highlight where those barriers exist in these programs and highlight how we can do better, particularly from a framework of kind of a targeted universalism mindset or, you know, kind of a consensus organizing mindset where instead of identifying problems that need to be solved, we start identifying opportunities to be seized and that we do it in kind of an evidence-based best practice mindset, right? Rather than, I think politics is so often about evoking emotion and evoking feelings. And I think we've seen that more now than ever in the last couple of administrations. But the reality is that if we're not actually using data and science and research to tell us how these systems have continued to disproportionately harm our neighbors, how they've continued to perpetuate institutionalized inequities, then we, you know, quite frankly, aren't doing any better than our predecessors at building institutions and systems that enhance barriers for folks. So that's kind of been my mission. That's the underlying goals with which I do my work, whether that's reforming the foster care system. In my case, I'm an Afro-Latina woman. 
I have a twin brother who's also Afro-Latina. I have a half brother who is Afro-Indigenous. And we were sent to live with, you know, middle-class white folks in a community where at the time, I wouldn't have told you that they were Trump supporters when I was 10, but, you know, have since become ardent Trump supporters. And you can see how over the course of that time, they instilled a lot of their perspective on the world, right? Evangelical Christian perspectives on my way of being only to find that when that happens, you know, you aren't actually helping those kids grow up to be the best versions of themselves because they don't see themselves reflected in the foster family that they're living in, or they don't see themselves reflected in the classroom when we don't have a workforce that actually has black and brown educators in it, particularly in a lot of these rural communities. You know, you don't see that equity being enhanced when we think about barriers to access to higher education or job security. So I say all of that to say that best of intentions are great, but if we're not thinking about evidence-based best practices that actually ensure and model statistically significant impacts to meet our intentions, we're not doing it right. And how receptive have your fellow legislators been to this effort to bring evidence-based best practices and bring data into the system and try to serve both parts of your state, right? Like the very rural parts that you grew up in to the more urban places in the western part of Washington? You know, that's a great question, Ryan. And I would say that I would have to get a lot of my colleagues to understand what evidence-based best practices are in the first place. Again, we have a lot of folks who legislate based on hyper-partisan politics and what evokes the best emotions from their base. And so we are going through a lot of challenges around what work can we do to drive change? And I think it would require a recognition that we as legislators, we are as elected officials, come to this work with our own biases, our own kind of acculturated mindsets. And we have to do our own work as legislators to be able to say, hey, our good intent might actually be rooted in a white savior complex or our good intent may be rooted in uh, biases around seeing black and brown, uh, you know, marginalization as a problem, you know, and by that, I mean, thinking about, you know, well, gosh, I've just, I've got to go fund more air quote welfare programs for black and brown people because they're the people who are in the system. And I think what I would say, Ryan, about that is that until we do the work to understand our own biases as legislators, it's really hard to then accept that data that tells us we're wrong is data that we should be taking in. And that was a really, sorry, Ryan, this is one of those moments where I would say that was a really long-winded answer to that, because I'm really dancing around wanting to say, like, look, friends, Republicans are not the only racists. And at the end of the day, my experience as a legislator, when I got elected in 2016, I was the first Black woman elected to the state legislature in 18 years. In 18 years, in a state that everybody thinks is like the most progressive, you know, one of the top three progressive states in the country. And if I said that out loud to people, I was told, you just don't know how to do this job yet. Or, well, you just haven't been here long enough. Or that's just not the way we do things around here. And so every time I would say, well, hey, friends, like this policy, I actually think is going to further harm black and brown folks, further harm, you know, women farthest from opportunity, further harm LGBTQ plus folks. And 
instead it was, well, but this is what's going to get folks reelected, or this is, you know, where our base is right now. And so it's what you're hearing me dance around is the idea that I don't know that our party is ready to hear or wants to hear that we have our own work to do. And so I use the term evidence-based best practices a lot of the time to highlight kind of a soft way of saying, hey, friends, hey, Democratic colleagues, we got to do our work too. I think you're making an incredibly important and good point. I don't think we have a lot of Trump listeners to the New Deal podcast, but we certainly have a lot of Democrats. Can you talk about where some blind spots are or places, as you say, where we're not understanding our bias and as a party and what we could do better to serve the people we represent? That's a really great question. I can answer it from the context of the work that I've been really pushing, which is when I ran for Congress in 2012, and I lovingly say I didn't lose because I dispelled a lot of rumors and or a lot of myths in Washington that Black women, I ran as the first Black woman for Congress in our state's history. And I raised, I think it was like $1.3 million in the first six months of our campaign. And so dispelled the idea that, you know, women of color can't fundraise. I, you know, was able to, in a 19-way primary, come in third. So I say I didn't lose, but I learned a ton of lessons about how real politics, and I joke because technically state politics is politics as well, but real politics at the congressional, the national level get played. And I think what it highlighted for me first and foremost, is we like to assume that, you know, Democrats all think the same way, that we're all of a like mind. And we'll talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we'll say, well, see, this is why we're better than the Trumpers, right? Because we care about diversity, equity, inclusion. And yet what I find is that there are contingents of our party that will be the first and the loudest to throw black and brown voices under the bus when we say, hey, friends, let's say that environmental policy you're working on, I want to save the planet too, but I can't save my neighbors if they don't feel like they can save themselves first before they think about saving the planet. And, you know, and all of a sudden it's blasphemy, right? And now you've got an entire environmental community coming after you for not being a good environmentalist because you're unwilling to chain yourself to the tree while you watch the rest of the forest burn down. Or, you know, talking about the fact that you know, pre-George Floyd, that we should even be thinking about evidence-based best practice data around overburdened, underrepresented, and historically harmed communities as drivers of where we fund, you know, solutions. I say all of that to say I founded something in 2020 after I lost the congressional campaign called the Political Equity Project. And because what became very clear to me was after getting elected in the tightest race in Washington state in 2016, I won my primary by 68 votes. I won by less than 1% in the general. And I flipped a Republican seat to become the 51st House member, which kept our House majority that year. And so it was great. Everybody's like, oh, we love you. You're amazing. And then I started calling out the system for what it was, right? It was not equitable for me as a Black woman. It was not equitable for me as a full-time employee who had, you know, was the primary income earner in my family. I couldn't afford to give up my job to go serve in a part-time legislature. I had two kids under the age of five when I got elected. There was no, you know, we'll fight for childcare everywhere else, but we wouldn't fight to make sure that I had access to childcare while doing my legislative job. So I highlight those things to say that in the Political Equity Project, we focus on the fact that donors will spend millions of dollars in a campaign cycle to recruit women and people of color, 
to train women and people of color. And we train them in the mindset that it's you versus me, us versus them. Because in order to win, I've got to prove that my opponent is worse than I am, right? Okay, you know, very standard campaign policy, very standard campaign practice. What we don't do is then turn around and train those same folks when they enter institutions that weren't built for them, by them, or with their inclusion in mind. We don't offer them a retention program. We don't give them professional development tools in conflict negotiation or anti-discrimination practice, or we don't offer them executive, I like to call it elected coaching, right? We'll give the CEO of Amazon or Microsoft an executive coach because it's the first time they've ever been that CEO or, you know, a C-suite member, but we won't offer our elected officials coaching, right, on how to do good governance. And governance is really about how we build the collective we. And so what we've done by not training folks on governance once they're elected is we've said the only tools in your toolkit are constant fighting. And that's really what you see play out at both the state, the national level is just this constant kind of you versus me, us versus them crisis rhetoric. And I think that's where we have really failed, quite frankly, as a society and as a political party, is that we don't actually live up to our values. Because if we did care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, if we really thought that we needed more women and people of color in elected office, we wouldn't abandon them once they got elected and say, great, let's pat ourselves on the back. We did it. We got a black woman elected. And then say, but you know what, you go figure out the institution and good luck. We hope you survive. And then are somehow shocked, you know, when women and people of color decide to only serve one term or two terms, because being in politics as a person of color, as the other trying to reform the institution can be very traumatic, especially if you're the only or the first, because everybody's expecting you to carry all of that water by yourself. And so I would say that's where we've let our elected officials down is by not continuing to support them with, you know, professional development resources. And I know that sounds corny, but that's, I'm on that kick. And I just, I will go down with the ship expressing that as one of our biggest failures. I couldn't agree more. It's so critical. You have people who get elected and, you know, are passing hundred millions of dollars, if not billion dollar budgets in state legislatures and city councils and county government. And the assumption is, well, they can just figure it out. And also in the context of partisanship and social media and all these incredibly challenging tides and, you know, public opinion and everything else. And then if you add on that, that they're coming from, you know, historically marginalized communities, whereas you say the institution wasn't built at all thinking about them, it's not surprising that you then choke off the pipeline of both, as you say, people doing good governance at the level they're at, but then also the people who will then run for Congress and Senate and president and serve in higher office because you haven't given them the support they need to rise up the ladder. Yeah. Well, and to your point, and I think this is something so critical for people to understand is that most of these folks, not all, but most of these folks are coming from, you know, quite frankly, childhood trauma experiences or, you know, societal trauma experiences. And that's a lot of what's driving them to run for public office in the first place is that they want to see that change, right? My public school teachers taking care of me drove me to fight for public school education so that other kids growing up like me wouldn't, you know, fall behind. And yet when you get to these places, I think people forget that a lot of these places, not only were they not for me, by me, or with my inclusion in mind, a lot of them have actually been institutionalized to manifest my exclusion intentionally. 
right? And while I would say that, you know, this generation, because you're going to hear people say, well, I, you know, I didn't own slaves. Well, I get it. I hear you. But what we don't recognize is that a lot of the processes, the internal policies that we use. So for example, one of the things we highlight in conversation lately is the expectation around women's dress codes in legislatures or the fact that men always have to wear a suit and tie, right? And you look at that and you say, well, part of that dress code came out of the fact that only upper crust wealthy, you know, white landowners could afford to dress a certain way in during a certain period. And yet here we are perpetuating that expectation that when I elect a single mom from, you know, Everett, who's trying to get her kids through school, you know, maybe the only access she has to clothing is, you know, through a resale market. And it's not going to be, you know, suit jackets and pearls. It's going to be whatever's clean and affordable for her. And yet, because we've now instituted this mandate, right, or we perpetuate this mandate, she now has to go out and buy a whole new wardrobe. Well, here's the problem. She can't expense that to her campaign account, right? She's not Sarah Palin, because a whole bunch of people are going to then blow her up for expensing her clothing, you know, to her campaign expense account. She doesn't get a member expense account to do that. And so what are we telling her? We're telling her that she now has to work twice as hard to get the same respect in the institution that's naturally afforded to the 60-year-old retiree who this is, you know, this is their second income or their third income for them because it's just something they decided they wanted to do in their spare time. And I think that's just a really unfair perpetuation of practices that just maybe don't need to be around anymore. It's an incredibly important point. Before we continue the conversation, I want to let you in on a tool that's been transforming the way political comms and digital teams of all sizes work. The tool is hashtag viral, the newsletter brought to you by our friends at Girl in the Gov. Hashtag viral brings social media content ideas, platform explainers, and best practices through a political application lens to inboxes every Tuesday. This skip the meeting, make it an email method of social media consulting has saved teams time and money all the while providing easy to apply content concepts across all major platforms. Covering the works from Instagram and TikTok to YouTube and Twitter, Hashtag Viral shares pertinent updates on platform features and best practices. Best yet, it's a resource designed by two political influencers who know the intersection of politics and social media like the back of their hands. To subscribe, visit www.girlinthegov.com backslash newsletter. Now, back to our episode. Can you talk about running for office in 2016? I mean, a lot of folks would say, <laughs> look, you got through the foster care system. You first your family to graduate from undergrad. You know, you got your master's degree. You have two young kids. Like, what makes you then go and try to flip a district and serve in what is a second job in a complex political environment? You know, I keep asking myself that every day. No, I'm just kidding. Because sure enough, I got out after I, I lost my congressional and I decided to come back and do it again. I ran the first time in 2016 as the only woman of color running for a state legislative seat with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. I ran in a conservative swing district that had been held by Republicans for nearly 40 years or the majority of Republicans for 40 years. And I was the first black woman to do it. And so... I have to say, thankfully, I was idealistic. I was very idealistic. I had worked for a U.S. senator for five years. I had worked for our governor at a state agency for seven years. 
I believe in the power of government to do good. I still believe in the power of government to do good. And that when you elect good people who have, you know, the right motivations, government can be a force for good. And I wanted to be a part of being a force for good to ensure that our public education system best served every single student in this state. Because what I also know is that we don't have a lot of control over how people are parenting their kids. We don't have a lot of control over what values people are passing on to the next generation. But what we do have control over is trying to equalize economic and educational opportunity. So I ran with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. I found out very quickly that in my district, when I would go doorbelling, I call it doorbelling. I don't know if other folks I think call it canvassing. There were certain parts of my community I could not doorbell. We have waterfront property in my district facing the Puget Sound. And it's a most of the waterfront property is in, in a homeowners association. And it was the one, there was probably about 12 precincts in that part of my district I could not doorbell because every time I went there, I would have the cops called on me and folks would profess that, you know, I wasn't allowed to be there because I wasn't part of the homeowners association. We can get into detail about y'all know that, you know, it's totally legal to doorbell as a candidate anywhere. I would go to certain neighborhoods and every, you know, two out of three doors would have some sort of gun ownership mantra on it. And I would have to decide whether or not I was brave enough to decide, you know, to see if I was going to get a gun pulled on me. I doorbelled a district six blocks from my house, two blocks from my kid's current school, where on the 4th of July, a gentleman was hosting a barbecue on his front driveway. And I walked up to introduce myself as a candidate to be their next state representative. And he proceeded to call me the N-word to my face. I had a mayor in one of the smaller communities in my district who came up to me about two thirds of the way through the campaign and said, you know, Christine, of course, I'm on your team. I'm so excited for you. But I just have to ask, like, is there any way that you can ask your volunteers to not talk about how excited they are that you're a woman of color? It just, you know, it just really makes my neighbors uncomfortable. And then, like, clearly you don't need to talk about it because like your picture is all over your lit. Like, Maybe you could just tone it down a little bit, you know, ask them. And we literally did. We ended up telling all of our volunteers who came in, we asked them to really not highlight that I was a woman of color. Why? Because the campaign team was so focused on the winning that they felt like if that was the thing we needed to do to ensure that I won, we wouldn't do it. I, as the only woman of color running that year at the state level, the Republican Party decided to go out and find a court record that I had when I was in college for, I'd been driving across my college campus. I apparently did not throw my wallet in the car with my license in it. And because I was like, oh, I'm just driving across campus to this dorm or whatever. I recognize not a good idea, but I did it. And the muffler on my car, because I had a really crappy car in college, fell off and I got pulled over. I got cited for not driving with a license. And so of course that shows up at the county, you know, at the county courthouse. I got it deferred. You know, he's like, just prove that you have your license and your insurance, bring that back to the court, et cetera. Well, but because it showed up in the county court record, the Republican Party at the time decided that they were going to take that record. They modified the PDF. And so they put a court number on it that went to a assault case. And when you actually clicked on it, it went to somebody else's name, a completely different assault case. But what they tried to pitch to King 5 News was that I had been arrested in college for assault and they created a Facebook page called Criminal Christine Reeves. 
all for the purpose in the last week of the campaign of putting a picture of a black woman behind jail cell bars up on the internet and trying to sell that as a reason not to vote for me. These are the things that I experienced in the first campaign of Donald Trump. Let me tell you what it was like to run in 2020 after Donald Trump's followers felt more empowered, because I represent a district that includes Auburn, where we have a Proud Boy cell. I had to really think about running again with two small humans at a time when my home address has to be made public as part of my financial disclosures, where you have to think about whether or not you want your kids' pictures on flyers on your campaign, because you're not quite sure what folks might try to do. And despite all of those experiences, Ryan, I came back and ran for public office again because I fundamentally believe that government can be a force for good. And if I don't stand up and fight for my community, if I'm not willing to do it as somebody who has been able to win elections, how can I expect the next generation of leaders to do it under harder circumstances? So I'll stop there. But yeah, I could go on for days about, yeah, it's hard. And I'm not going to lie to people about how hard running for office can be. But I can tell you it's also one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. Unbelievable. I'm sorry that you had to experience all of those in order to serve your community. It's heartbreaking. Let's talk about the rewarding part. When I look at your legislative efforts, it is wide and deep. You are everything from vlogging to ticket prices to expanding childcare to looking at urban agriculture and protecting whistleblowers. Can you talk a little bit about how you choose your legislative priorities and some of the things you're most proud uh, that you've accomplished? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Well, I tell folks when you come to state elected office or I think even local elected office, maybe even congressional office, you cannot be everything to everyone, right? I know the list you just gave makes it look like I am, but I tell folks that I really operate in buckets based on my values. So my values and my lived experience are very much rooted in three buckets. First, it's education and educational access and opportunity. Second, it's economic opportunity, economic development. I spent 15 years as an economic developer for my profession. So, you know, supporting small businesses and creating economic opportunity and economic and career pathways for folks. And then my third bucket is environmental justice. And I really focus on that from kind of, again, how do we create, you know, environmental security for community, but doing it with a poverty reduction lens. And so that has then shaped what committees I sit on. I currently serve as the vice chair of the Consumer Protection and Business Committee. This is the committee that regulates banking and insurance. I know it probably sounds boring. And also, how do you get on this committee when I've never worked in banking or insurance? I got on this committee because I am a, you know, I consider myself a strong consumer protection advocate and somebody who realizes that if we are not fighting to ensure that we are regulating industry in a way that puts consumers first, then we end up in situations where industry will take advantage of our communities. And we've watched that play out in a lot of ways. That intersects to, again, the environmental justice space with air quality, you know, pollution, et cetera. In the educational space, I've been a huge advocate, obviously, in general for K through 12 public education, higher education, as somebody who has benefited from those endeavors. But I'm also a Head Start kid, you know, growing up the daughter of a single mom, I've seen the power of early learning. I now know from an evidence-based best practice and research that 92% of our kids' brain development happens between zero and five. And yet here in my district, 
45% of my kids are not showing up to school kindergarten ready. And I represent the sixth most diverse school district in the country. So it's hard for me not to say both as a mom who utilizes childcare, but also as somebody who recognizes the power in our economy of people being able to get to work when they know they have a safe, affordable place for their kids to be and that it's high quality enough to inspire that brain development in a meaningful way, we're going to be better off as a society when we invest in universal childcare. And then environmental justice for me is really about how do we make sure we are saving the planet for sure? How are we addressing climate change? But how are we doing it with equity and inclusion in mind? Because we've got generations of historic harm that have been done in the environmental space where we said, oh, well, you know what? All the cheap property is south of the SeaTac airport. That's where black and brown people can go live because that's where they can afford it. But like, let's also make that the industrial center. Let's also make that you know, the place that we're going to have a lot of logistics centers. And what you then find is that it's these communities who are dealing with the ramifications of air pollution. You know, I have one of the worst air pollution or air quality records in our state. We end up with noise pollution, light pollution, because, you know, quite frankly, we're not thinking about the environmental impacts on the community. We're just thinking about our ability to create economic opportunities. So for me, this is all intersectional across these buckets, but that's what drives my work to kind of figure out what policy I'm going to fight for. And then quite frankly, you know, everything can be superseded by what do my constituents actually need, right? I just got out of a meeting talking to a group of Latinx women who many are first-generation Americans, many of them are single moms, trying to navigate the institutions of, you know, the social safety net. And again, just highlighting that best of intentions in building that safety net, but so much of that safety net has actually just continued to perpetuate barriers to do the things that we want to do to make sure that these folks can contribute equally to their community in a meaningful way. And so they have several suggestions on things we can be doing differently. And I'm very excited to take those suggestions back to my team and say, okay, how do we incorporate this into the work that we're doing in the education space, in the economic space, in the environmental justice space? You've had, as we started with, a remarkable journey and have taken on many challenges and are doing really critical work. What do you see as next for you and how will you evaluate your options? Thanks for that question, Ryan. And I think so often that's the question we give all politicians, right? Because clearly there's got to be a career trajectory here. And what I tell folks right now is I'm just super invested in doing the job that I have. I kind of did my moonshot attempt at running for Congress in 2020. I'm really proud of you know the numbers we put up. I'm really proud of the fundraising we did. I'm really proud of how we were able to pivot as the first campaign to have to think about what it meant to run for Congress in a pandemic. I'm really proud of that work. But I really feel like at this time in our country, when so much isn't working in D.C., we need people in our home states really thinking about how important state legislatures are to being kind of that brick wall or that line, right, that's going to make sure that the negative policies that have come out of D.C. in the past you know, administration, the negative policies that are coming out of places like Florida and Texas and other places, that that policy doesn't get replicated in our communities. And I'm really focused on helping our school board candidates and our city council candidates because we're seeing the national, you know, Republican Party really lean into building their own cadre of the next generation of elected leaders 
And they're doing a much more effective job of it than we are because everybody's so focused on DC right now and January 6th and all of that. And that's all super important. Don't get me wrong. But I'll tell you right now, my community is focused on how are we making gas cheaper in Washington? How are we making sure that groceries are more affordable? How are we making sure that their kids school, you know, that bullying isn't happening in school? And a lot of that isn't going to get decided at the federal level. It's going to get decided, you know, in our local districts and our our legislature. So I'm excited to be where I'm at right now. I'm excited to just keep doing the work and, you know, ask me that question again in four years and, you know, we'll see what's available and what timing looks like and where my kids are and all of that good stuff. Absolutely. Fair enough. And I just want to thank you, one, for taking the time and being so open and honest about your experiences and the challenges and the the things we could do to make serving an elected life better. We love having you as part of the New Deal. But I also appreciate that you're thinking about not just your experience, but creating pathways and reducing barriers for other people to run and serve. And it's incredibly important and inspirational and frankly I don't think it's talked about enough. So I love that you came on this podcast and gave us some real tangible items that we should all take back to our elected bodies to try to make them more accessible to more people. Well, I appreciate being on today, Ryan. And for quite frankly, for the New Deal, the New Deal was one of the first organizations I got introduced to when I got elected in 2016 or, you know, and served in 2017 that, you know, that said it's okay to be a pragmatic, thoughtful Democrat focused on, you know, kind of economic opportunity for all and, you know, building an economy that works best for everyone. And I've just really enjoyed getting to meet people in the network. But to your point, you know, I think that I'm not going to get reelected because I'm talking about how to make the institution a better place because, you know, folks have such a big distrust in government. And I think one of the things I appreciate about your willingness to hear me out on this podcast is that if we don't make the institution a better place for people to serve, we're never going to actually make the institution a place where democracy works best for everyone. And so I appreciate New Deal's willingness to actually just hear me out and let me talk about the importance of reforming our political institutions and treating them as places of work that need to work better for women and people of color so that our democracy works best for us all. Well, I think it's critical. And I hope this podcast is a platform to jump onto bigger platforms to raise this issue and get us all engaged in this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for serving in the office. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks to our listeners for spending time with us today. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, No tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.